This is a message by Pastor Mark Fox at Antioch Community Church in Elon, North Carolina. For more information about the church, go to antiochchurchnc.org. Our passage today is in 1 Peter. It's chapter 3, 8 through 12. So you can be turning there. And it reads, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for those who are called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So welcome, Antioch, and those who are watching online. We're glad that you're here. We are in the book of 1 Peter, have been since, I don't know, a couple of months ago, and we'll continue in this book until around November the 12th, when we will finish, Lord willing. So, you know, Peter has, has just really barely touched on the theme of suffering, which is the primary theme of this book. He's writing to elect exiles who are living in a hostile world. How can we live in a hostile world and honor Christ and love uh, people in that, in that place? But right now, he, he's going to wrap up the previous theme where under suffering is submitting to authority. And sometimes submitting to authority is hard because the authority that we submit to is unjust and, 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 uh, and despotic. And so he said, here's how we display our freedom in Christ through submission to authority. So he says, finally, the end of this section as we talk about submission, finally then, all of you pursue these five things. Pursue these five things so that you might be a blessing to others for that is what you've been called to do and to be and also so that you can receive a blessing from God and that is also what we have been called to as followers of Jesus. So we're going to look at this passage today under two main points, fivefold ministry and getting even. Now some of you will think of fivefold ministry a little differently than what it is here in this text according to the type of church you grew up in. But Peter calls us all, all of you, says, all of you, he says, operate in these five virtues that pack a powerful punch. Think of them as the five fingers on your hand from which the grace of the Lord radiates from the center. And when they work together is a powerful ministry of love and grace and reconciliation in the body of Christ. It's by the grace of God freely given to us in Christ that we can Live this way, and Christ demonstrates. All of these, these five virtues are perfectly embodied in Jesus. All of these five virtues can be imperfectly embodied in us as we are being sanctified and yet have not been made perfect. Well, first he says we're to have unity of mind. Unity of mind. It's another way of saying that we're to walk together as those who agree, Amos 3.3, 3, or Romans 12.16, to live in harmony with one another. I remember that my earliest pastor mentor was Howard Thompson. And he told me this. We used to meet every day, every week for lunch on Tuesdays. And we talk about everything because I didn't know anything about pastoring. I didn't know what I was doing. And so he, I remember him telling me that. I'll never forget this illustration. He grew up in Oklahoma. He was a cowboy. He was a rancher kind of guy, you know, growing up. 
And he said, I remember him telling me, if there are people in the church who just don't agree with the church, not because it's unbiblical, they shouldn't agree with that, but just because they're not very agreeable people. He said, they're like people that are sitting on the back of a wagon that's being drawn by a horse, and their feet are dragging on the ground. Now, he said, their, their feet dragging on the ground is really not going to stop the progress of that wagon. It's just going to make that progress a little more inefficient. And I've never forgotten that picture. We don't want to be that person who's dragging our feet simply because we don't want anything to be done any differently than we would do it ourselves. And so we just put those feet down. Peter says here, no, I want you to have unity of mind. Peter's going to call this, uh, cover this a little bit more in chapter 4 uh, in more depth. But this call to unity in the church is clear apostolic teaching. Clear apostolic teaching from the first century and is just as pertinent and important for us in the 21st century. Now, Peter may be thinking back to unity of mind. You know, where have I been out of sorts, out of, out of step, you know, with, with what's important? He may be thinking about that time when he told Jesus, stop talking about that. No, 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 you're not going to die. You're not going to go to the cross. What are you talking about? Stop it. And what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me. Satan, which is another word for adversary. You're being my adversary. And then Peter says, you're a hindrance. The word means stumbling block. You're a stumbling block to me, Peter, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now listen, we can disagree, saints, all day long and twice on Sunday about the things of man. (laughs) But we cannot afford to disagree about the things of God, and in particular, the things that are pertinent to the gospel of our salvation, our grace in Christ, because that's going to be uh, deadly and dangerous. Second, he says, besides unity of mind, we're to have sympathy for one another. Sympathy means to feel together. Uh, Jesus is said of if Jesus in Hebrews 14, 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus understands our weaknesses. He sees our frame, that we are but dust, and he loves us anyway. He feels for us and with us in those things. Paul said it like this in Romans 12, verse 12, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. That's what it means to have sympathy with one another, to enter into. And maybe we would say empathy, but the word here is used used as sympathy. Because, look, you can't enter into others' hurts or joys unless you know about them and unless you love that person. So to have sympathy for one another is to know people better, to engage in body life and, and gospel culture ministry, to be involved with people uh, in, in interpersonal relationships. So you know them and you love them. And when they're hurting, you're hurting. And when they're rejoicing, man, you're rejoicing with them. That's what he's talking about here. Be unified, have sympathy. Third, he says we have, are to have brotherly love for one another. And remember, we walk in brotherly love to the same degree as we recognize every single day that we are family. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. We are 
family. We are living stones being built together as the temple of the living God. And when we come together on Sunday mornings, we're not just a bunch of disparate families who really don't know each other or care about each other. We are the body of Christ that is expressed here in this location on Sunday mornings. And throughout the week as well, we are family. Again, Hebrews helps us with this where it says, He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why He, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is not ashamed of you. And He calls you a brother or a sister. The word there for brothers in the Greek can mean both. He calls us brothers and sisters because we are part of His family. Remember when Jesus was interrupted in Capernaum? He was teaching in a house we think it was Peter's house, but we don't know. But that was his, kind of his home location. When he was in Capernaum, he was in that house teaching a lot of times or out on the, at the, not near the sea. But he's in the house, and somebody interrupts him. Hey, Jesus, uh, your, your mother and your brothers are outside, and they're, they're asking about you. They're looking for you, right? And remember what Jesus said to that guy? He said, who is my mother and my brothers? And then he looked at the people sitting around him, and he says, Whoever does the will of my father, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. And he was making a point there that our family is not necessarily blood relatives. And maybe they are if they're, if they're born again. But because of our new birth in Christ, we are family. We are brothers and sisters. So we, we love that brotherly love that we have for one another. And we are continually pursuing that with one another. Fourth, he says, we're to have a tender heart towards one another. The word there in the Greek really means visceral. It's from the gut. It's, it's internal organ kind of stuff. You, may, you, you have this, this tenderness towards someone that comes from the very center of your being. Again, Jesus, again, is our model for this. I love the verse in Matthew where it says, Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. He felt it in his gut because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Sometimes we're angry at sinners, right? Sometimes we're, we're you know, uh, impatient with people who don't know the Lord, and we, we just want to you know, get right or get left or get out of my way or whatever. But Jesus had compassion on them because they were sheep without a shepherd. They were harassed and helpless. They didn't know which way to go. And the people in the world don't know which way to go unless we help them and unless the Lord helps them through us. Jesus told his compassion, Jesus' compassion for the spiritually poor, the sick, the weak, and the infirmed was extraordinary. It was stuff people wrote books about. We call them the Gospels, right? He told a story to illustrate this word, this type of compassion. Because a lawyer asked, well, who is my neighbor? So he tells a story about a man who was beaten and robbed and left beaten and bloodied on the side of the road. You know the story. And a priest came along, a holy man of God, and he saw the guy, and he walked all the way on the other side of the road. He didn't want to get close to that guy and, you know, maybe catch something from him, perhaps. Maybe that was what he was thinking, but he didn't want to have anything to do with helping him. And then a Levite came, came along, and Jesus picked these two on purpose, right? Because these were the ones who know the law but aren't doing the law, and he walks right past the guy, too, who came along and showed pity, had compassion, same word. Remember, what, was, what do we call him? The good he was from Samaria. He was a despised person to the Jews. They were considered half-breeds, and, and the Jews didn't want to have anything to do with Samaria, Samaria or Samaritans. 
That's why they would walk all the way around to get below Samaria instead of going through it. Jesus went through it. But this guy got off of his donkey or whatever, or if he's walking, he went over to this man and he took pity on him. He had compassion for him and he paid for this man's care. Jesus asked the lawyer, uh, which of those three proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And the lawyer said, uh, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, yeah, you go and do likewise, right? Now, look, we don't pass by many beaten and bloody people on the side of the road. So you might be thinking, I'm off the hook on that bad boy. Well, let me, let me share you another verse where this, this word is used in Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, the same word, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. Paul's talking there to the church. He's talking about the one another's. Be kind to one another, your brothers and sisters, and forgive them. You know, compassion for others sometimes look a lot like forgetting and forgiving or not forgetting. Maybe you'll never forget, but forgiving that hurt that someone caused you and not holding on to it. You know, I heard a story years ago. It's probably apocryphal, kind of like my crocodile story, but uh, these guys were cooking bacon in the woods, you know, and they've been out, uh, out camping and they're cooking bacon and the smell's going everywhere. And all of a sudden they hear this roar and here comes a bear. And so they take off the other way. They leave that bacon in the frying pan and the bacon walks over and, and he's, he grabbed, they do have paws and see this probably didn't happen, but he grabbed it and he wants that bacon. So he presses, presses it up against him and the heat of that shocks him, his heart so badly that he falls over dead. How many believe, how many believe that story? But the, the point is, is that if we hold on to that unforgiveness, that bitterness, it's like taking that frying pan that's a thousand degrees and pressing it up against us and holding on to that, and it doesn't do anybody any good, and it probably will end up uh, killing you or killing your relationships. Our compassion, then, it, it involves forgiveness. And fifth, he says, we're to have a humble mind. A humble mind, a tender heart and a humble mind, that's a powerful one-two punch, right? We need both of those as people who walk with Jesus. And if the first point, unity of mind, was to be like-minded, this one, humble mind, is to be lowly-minded. Who was lowly-minded? Who was our, our example? Jesus, right? He was gentle and lowly. He was not haughty and Proud. Again, I love that passage in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. It's called the kenosis passage. The word means emptying. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul's saying you can do this. Have this mind because it's Jesus' mind, and you're in Jesus, he's in you. Have this mind among yourselves, church, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or, or clung to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So that's what Peter's talking about here. If we have a humble mind, we want to be more like Jesus and have that mindset that we humble ourselves even to the point of being wrong, even to the point of, of being made full of, even to the point of being despised by the world, etc. You know, in, in our first home group last week, not this week, but last week, I asked, uh, one of the icebreakers I asked was, 
hey, which, which character in the Bible do you really love or that you most identify with? And I think most of the people went with identify with because more than half the people in our home group said, Peter, yeah, got to be Peter, <laughs> you know. And I'm one of those because I think we all can identify that Peter was somebody who had to be humbled the hard way. He had to learn humility the hard way. And we have to learn humility sometimes the hard way. And some of us, including me, are still learning humility the hard way. But what a transformation we see in Peter. That once he was humbled, once he was restored by Jesus on that that shore with the fish cooking on the charcoal fire, he became a, a, a powerful minister of the gospel. Now, he wasn't perfect. Remember, Paul had to correct him. Paul got in his face, Galatians 2, and he said, Peter, what are you doing not eating with the, with the Gentiles? What are you, that's, that's misrepresenting the gospel. So Peter was not a perfect man, but boy, what a difference humility made in him when he came to Jesus and was restored. You know, Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. I, I, actually, let me go back. I missed this quote. Edmund Clowney says, Christian humility will be mocked as Jesus' humiliation on the cross was. But it will be honored by God in the triumph of the returning Lord. Now, that hadn't happened yet. That's still ahead of us. So our humbling, our humility will not be, it will be mocked by the world, but it will not be mocked by Jesus. He will honor us. I love the story of the missionary couple. I've told you this, couple, I've told you this before. But they were coming back from, the, from Africa. They've been in Africa for 40 years, and they're coming back. They're old, and they're tired from missionary work. And they're returning on a ship. This is in 1900. And they happen to be on the same ship as President Teddy Roosevelt, right? And they've been there 40 years doing mission work. He's been in Africa for two weeks hunting. He was a big hunter. And as they get closer to the dock, the missionary, the man noticed all the fanfare for the return of the president. I mean, there was a crowd with banners. There were flags. There was a marching band waiting for Roosevelt, right? And he was a little discouraged by that because he, his wife had been serving in a third world country for 40 years. They were tired. They were not in the best of health. They were worn down. And he watched as the crowd would make this big to-do about the return of the president. He couldn't help feel discouraged and unappreciated. Closer they got to the dock, the more profoundly he felt, you know, discouraged and sad and sorrowful. And finally, he just had to share it with his wife. He said, look, we've been gone for 40 years. The president for two weeks. Right? We, we've been serving as a missionary. He's been on a hunting trip. Where's our band? Where's our cheers? Where's our banner welcoming us home? And his wife, the faithful wife, changed his attitude with these words. My dear, you must remember, we're not home yet. We're not home yet, saints. Next, let's talk about getting even. This is great. Peter goes right from the five-fold ministry to the place where it will be tested. He said, hey, do these things knowing that you're going to be tested in doing these things. When others do evil against us, he says, attack us or revile us, here's how we get even. You want to get even when people do you wrong? Here's how you do it. When they do evil against you, you pay them back by blessing them with good. When they attack you, you pull out the big guns and show mercy. When they send that scud missile of reviling, you send it back with blessing and 
kindness. I tell you, this Christian lifestyle is otherworldly, isn't it? It's absolutely unlike the world. The first time I really experienced this, to my shock and dismay, or, or surprise, not dismay, uh, I was a new Christian. I was probably a year old in the faith. I don't remember exactly, but I know I was able to drive. I think I was 16, and I'd been reading through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, where Jesus said, yeah, I tell you uh, not to hate your enemies. I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I'm thinking, how do you even do that? Well, the next day after I'd read that, I was at a swim meet. I was part of this swim team, and, and we had a swim meet. And I'm walking to my car after the swim meet, and this guy, the word, his name came to me while we were singing today. I won't give you his last name, but his name was Ron. He was a high school uh, uh, classmate of mine. And he came and got in my face. He said, hey, Fox, I hear you're a Christian now. He said, what a joke. What a loser. You and all the rest of you Christians. <laughs> and I couldn't believe what came out of my mouth. I said, well, yeah, I am because the love of Jesus is real, man. And he loves you too, Ron. And you know what? So do I. I walked to my car still shaking from that account, but I could not believe it because what would have come out of my mouth before I met Jesus would have been something completely different, as you can imagine. So it's not exactly deep truth, but I think what's being taught here is that when we're reviled, we don't have to revile in return. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of close with this example um, that some of us have heard Dr. Mike Garrett. He's a Christian counselor in Raleigh. And I recommend him. Uh, we've been on Zoom with him. Some of you have been with him in person, perhaps, or his wife. They have a counseling ministry that's highly recommended. But he teaches about something that's called the trigger emotion reaction spiral. And I would almost guarantee that we've all been there, sometimes for days, sometimes for weeks, sometimes for months. He talked about people that he's counseled who've been there for literally for years. So here's, here's how it works. The, tri the trigger is something that the spouse says or does or does not or do doesn't do or doesn't say. So, for example, a husband walks in after work and he says, why isn't supper on the table? That's a trigger, right? Because what's going to happen is there's going to be an emotion that comes from that trigger in the wife. The wife feels something, right? She might feel uh, unloved or taken for granted or just, you know, disrespected. And she might react by saying, you are so selfish. I can't believe you would say something like that. And now he's triggered because she's gotten in his face. And so he feels something. And so his reaction is to come back double barrel. And what Mike, uh, Mike said, Mike Garrett said was, Here's, here's how you stop the spiral. It happens after the trigger. As soon as that trigger happens, you and you feel the emotion, this is where you stop it right here. And if what you would learn to do, and trust me, I'm speaking to you as a student, not as a professor here, not as an expert, but if, if you, what you can learn to do is at that moment when you feel angry or hurt or disappointed or whatever, Say, you know what, I need some time. Can I just take 20 or 30 minutes and just, I'm going to take a walk and just process what just happened. And you do that and you come back and your response is 
you know, I feel and I need. Not you did and you said and what a jerk you are and I can't believe, blah, 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 blah. I feel, here's how I feel in this situation. You know, I feel unloved. I feel taken for granted. I feel um, reviled. And I need your kindness and I need your understanding. What if she doesn't do that? She reacts. Well, guess what, guys? You have a trigger. You feel something, but you don't have to go to the reaction. You can say, okay, whoa, whoa, I, can we just take a break? I'm going to go take a walk. I'm going to go in the study. I'm going to whatever. And seriously, take some time and pray about it. Own your feelings. Feel what you feel. And then say, but I love my wife. I love my husband, whichever, whichever one. And I'm going to go back and I'm going to repay reviling with kindness. And again, it only works if you are willing to humble yourself and instead of reacting and attacking, you're willing to work on the relationship. Uh, the goal in any relationship, in, 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 any, in marriage, any relationship between people and who love each other is not to use or manipulate or to win or to come out on top. It's to encourage and bless and show the love of Christ in every circumstance, including when, when there is conflict. We've seen that in the elders' meeting. Where, where, there were six guys that are all strong guys and strong-willed men, and sometimes we can cross each other, and because, you know, my, I think my opinion is more important than Jeremy's or vice versa, and we can say things that we shouldn't have said, but we always work very, very quickly to, to repair that damage. I think we do, don't we, guys? Uh, but, but it takes humility and it takes a love for that person that's more important than me being right, right? I think Cindy and I have talked about this over the years, that a lot of times our marriage can go into adversarial relationship rather than we're a team, we're one, we are one flesh, we work together in the body of Christ. And we start thinking of each other as adversaries or, or even enemies sometimes. And that's rare, but it can happen and so we need to get back to, hey, this is, this is the woman that I love. This is the woman God's chosen for me, and he's the man that I love. That's the one that he's chosen for me. Now, Peter ends this section with an appeal, as I've said before, to what may have been his favorite psalm. Look at that, First Peter. He quotes from Psalm 34. Whoever desires to love life, he, I think he's kind of encapsulating the things he's just gone over. Whoever desires to love life and see good days. How many want to love life and see good days, right? That would be all of us. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He's on our side. We're on his side. And so we can do these things in God's grace. All right, let's take a moment and pray. Maybe something I said today um, was used by the Holy Spirit to bring you into a place of new freedom, maybe into a place of conviction, maybe into a place of, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm going to pursue this or I'm going to do this. Would you, if that's true, and, and I think God's truth always provokes a response in us. We can't just ignore it. If that's true, why don't you take a moment and in the quietness of this moment, just speak that to the Lord. Say, Lord, I heard you say to me this, and Lord, by your grace, I will do this, or I will stop doing that, or whatever the Lord's saying to you about unity of mind or humble mind, etc. Let's take a moment.
Jesus, we thank you that you are um, our Savior, that you sympathize with us in our weaknesses. You see the places where we struggle. You see the places where we're broken, where there have been wounds, maybe wounds from many, many years ago. You see those, and Lord, you are the only one who can bring us to a place of wholeness and health and healing. So we ask for you to do that, Lord, in our relationships with one another in this church, in our marriages. Lord, relationships with our children, our grandchildren, our co-workers, our people that we live next door to. Lord, work in us. Lord, let, let the change that we want to see in others begin in us by your, by your sovereign power and grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. Antioch meets every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at 1600 Powerline Road in Elon, North Carolina. For more information about Mark and the books he's written, go to jmarkfox.com.